morning, church. Hey, wasn't Easter great last Sunday? I mean, that's sort of like a loaded question, right? Who says nah? You know, who says no to Easter? No, it's always great. Resurrection Sunday, it's always great being together in one service. It's always great being outside and, and singing and, and worshiping. I just love days like that big time. And, and so if you got your Bible, go ahead and grab it. If you're new with us this morning, uh, maybe for the first time because of Easter, uh, we bring our Bibles to church every week because we use them. Uh, because we read them, because we open them, because some of us get a little crazy right in them. And if they're really wild, they just start circling a few things and have some notes in there. And because I really want you to see what the Bible says for yourself, because I didn't write it. My job is to help you understand it. That's my job. And so we gather together here. We open our Bibles. And so if you've got it with you, I hope you do, turn me to the book of Matthew. Now, we've been here for quite some time because the habit of our church is we go verse by verse through a book. And we don't skip anything because as a church, one of the things that we're really, really committed to is teaching the Word of God because there's a lot of thoughts about God. You know, people have all sorts of hot sports opinions about God, but the only way we really know who He is is by reading the revealed Word of God, leaving us a Holy Spirit-inspired understanding of actually who He is. Not who I think He might be, no, It'll show you who he is. And some of the passages we cover together on a Sunday morning, they're really encouraging. And, and some of the passages, like this morning, are, feel a little bit more like an MMA fight. They feel a little bit more like a punch in the face. And so the good news, though, through it all, the beauty is that God is Lord of it all. Easy stuff, which I'm still looking for, by the way, and the hard stuff. He is Lord of it all. And so go ahead and open your Bible to Matthew chapter 25. Now, the last several weeks has been some very, very interesting teaching as Jesus has been teaching his disciples and us about the end times. He's given them a little insider trading information about what is to come. And so far, we've covered the rapture. And, and we've covered the tribulation and the seal judgments. That's the first three and a half years. Then we covered the great tribulation and the trumpet judgments and the bold judgments. That's the last three and a half years. And then just before Easter, we covered the amazing return of Jesus, our King, in Matthew chapter 24. And while lots of people sort of geek out when pastors teach about the end times, Jesus ends this teaching with the reason why he shares it in the first place. Because we are not just supposed to know something, we're supposed to live something. So this is more than just you knowing something. Jesus is teaching this because we're supposed to live something. And the main theme has been, we need to be ready. We need to be ready. That's the main theme. So far, Jesus has taught six parables about being ready. And this morning, we're going to cover the seventh and final parable, commonly called the parable of the talents. And lots of people have heard 
of this parable, but they don't realize that the parable of the talents is part of the end times teaching of Jesus. We take it out of context, but you need to read it in context. Don't read it in isolation because it's going to color the parable in some very, very important ways. So let's look together at Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. This is what Jesus says. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, or your Bible may say five talents. To another, two bags, or two talents. And to another, one bag, or one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once, put his money to work, and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. Now, the word servant here, or your Bible may actually translate it as slave, is the, in the original language, it's, it's bond servant, or it's the word doulos. And so don't think slavery, don't think even indentured servitude. This is someone who has voluntarily, this is someone who has freely, someone who has willingly committed themselves for life to the master because of this deep, special love that they have for one another. That's what doulos means. That's what, so it's not maybe when we see servant or slave, we think something different. That's not the case here. So in the story, the master heads out of town for an unspecified amount of time. But before he goes away, he gives each of the three servants great wealth. Not a little bit of wealth, great wealth. He gives them different amounts of wealth, but it is a lot of money. And in your Bible, for those of you who, who have it translated as talent, uh, in the NIV they translate it as bags of gold. So growing up, when I was in church and I heard the word talent, I thought God gave this guy more ability. Like he gave this guy three superpowers, and this guy got one superpower, right? That's kind of how I read it. Or, or this guy got five gifts, uh, and, and this guy, he only got one gift. But that's not what it means at all. A talent is a unit of measurement. So in fact, a talent is approximately 75 pounds. And one talent would represent 15 years wages. So just to put it in context, however much you make a year, multiply by 15, that's one talent. So a guy got one talent, another guy got five talents. So let's go with bags of gold or 75 pounds of gold as one talent because Siri helped me a lot with this this week in the mathematics. And so when you look at it, the one talent guy got $2.4 million, okay? $2.4 million, which means that the two talent guy, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist here, $4.8 million. The five talent guy, $12.1 million. Point is, they all got way more money than they've ever had in their entire life. They've never seen wealth like this. But 
Jesus gave to each servant according to their ability, which means it assumes that God knew their ability. He understood his servants very well. So he knew them enough to go, hey, I'm going to give you more than that guy, not because I like you better, but because you have the capacity to handle more than that guy right now. So it's sort of like if you gave $2.4 million to a 16-year-old versus maybe a a 45-year-old. There's a different capacity. I hope there is a difference. I really hope there's a difference in that story. And so it assumes something there. And I'm going to ask you, Jesus says, I'm going to ask you to be faithful with whatever I give you because I know your capacity right now. And so after a long time, the master finally comes back to settle the accounts with these servants with whom he has entrusted his wealth. Remember whose wealth this is. You know, it's not like they earned something here. They were given something. And so look at what happens. That's verse 19. Jesus said, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Meaning, open the doors of heaven and enter in with me. I welcome you now to be with me forever. And then comes verse 22. Jesus says, the man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. If you have, it's, he's repeating himself, well done, good and faithful servant, exclamation point. You've been faithful with a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Meaning, open the doors of heaven and enter in with me and be with me forever. I will welcome you. Great job. Well done. Now, do you see the exact same phrase is used for both? Five-talent guy, two-talent guy. Same commendation here. Both had a 100% return on their investment, but regardless, it doesn't matter. It's, it's about something more here. But he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Come share your master's happiness. And so far, so good. Until verse 24, right? Jesus says then, the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown, gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked and lazy servant, exclamation point. So you knew that I harvest where I've not sown, and gather where I've not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I return, I would have received it back with interest. So this guy here, he doesn't get the commendation. He gets the rebuke. And now if you were with us back when we taught this series on the parables, anytime Jesus teaches a parable, there are three parts to every parable. There's the familiar, there's the unfamiliar, and then the shock. 
Okay? So the familiar part is the surface level reading. I think we get that, right? There's a master. He's gone away. Like you kind of understand how the story goes. But the question we really have now starts to be, well, what is the unfamiliar? Well, to do that, you've got to go back up to verse 14. And it starts with the word, again. Now, some of you might have circled that word back in the day, but that's the word. It starts with again, and, and I looked that up in the original language to see what that meant, and it means again. And so what he's talking about here, to understand what again is, then you have to go all the way back up to verse 1. So Jesus begins the parable of the ten bridesmaids or the ten virgins by saying, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins or ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And then the parable of the talents here begins with, again, meaning like verse 1, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. So the unfamiliar that Jesus is now going to unpack for these people and for these people, by the way, this parable is not just a story about a man who goes on a journey and leaves some money for his servants. No, it's actually something much more profound because it is the kingdom of heaven. And the master, if you haven't figured it out yet, is Jesus because we're talking about the end times. This journey that he's going on is his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. That's the journey he's going on. And his return is the second coming. And verse 19 says, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. So how long is a long time before he returns? And we know nobody knows. Like Jesus himself doesn't know is what he's already said. Only the father knows. So we, like these servants, are living in the in-between time. So it's in between the ascension and the end times. So we're, until he returns. That's the, the place we're living. And therefore, if we are the servants because we have willingly and voluntarily trusted the master, and, and we've said we're going to be his for life, that means we have been entrusted with something. He's given us something. He's placed something in our hands that's incredibly precious, and he's given you and I something that has immeasurable value. And he's on this journey, and he's clearly promised to return and settle accounts. And so the servants in this passage are those who say they are associated with Jesus. And so here's the question then. What's the possession that we've been given that's so stinking valuable? What is it that we have that's been entrusted to me that is so beautiful, so amazing? Like, what are these talents that we've been given to steward like him and to steward for him? Because remember, it's, it's not ours. He's given us something to steward. And the answer is, it's the beauty of the gospel. The answer is the common grace given to us of the knowledge of a God who spoke this world into existence. It's the knowledge that God made you and I in his image who loves us and calls us. And that's, in a sense, what these talents actually are. So Jesus is saying, bags of gold, bags of diamonds, lots of cars, multiple houses, bags of anything, none of it 
absolutely nothing you can think of is more valuable or more beautiful than the riches of the kingdom of heaven. And that's what this parable seems to be explaining. This common grace is an invitation to share in the beauties of Christ, and that is a privilege for us servants. That's an honor for us servants to be included in this. And in fact, when you read through the scriptures, this entrusting to us of the kingdom of heaven and of the riches of Christ, we're called to actually be about it together. We're not supposed to be doing it always independently, like we're in it together. For example, if this parable is to be interpreted in our day, the five-talent guy and the two-talent guy is someone who takes the opportunities that are given to them, and because of the riches of the glory of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ, they're actually working it. They're not getting it done. They're out there making a return on their investment. Like in 1 Corinthians 15, where it says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, he says, stand firm. Let nothing move you always, not sometimes, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Or like Ephesians chapter 5 where it says, be very careful then how you live. Very careful. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity. Why? Because the days are evil. The days are short. Culture is weird. Or like Colossians chapter 1 where it says, he is the one we proclaim. He's the one admonishing and teaching everyone, not some, not those who come on Sunday morning, everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Or like Peter chapter 3, always be prepared. You know this. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Or 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, you are a chosen people. He says, you're a royal priesthood. He says, you and I, we're a holy nation. He says, we are God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his glorious and wonderful light. See, the reality is the unfamiliar in this passage is showing what does it mean for you and I to live with the end in mind? What does that mean? We who've been entrusted with the riches of Christ, what does it mean for us in that interim period between this sort of ascension of Christ and when he will return? How do we live in this in-between time? And how do we steward opportunities? How do we steward the riches of the gospel? And what Jesus seems to be saying in this passage is, look, whatever you do, whether you have a lot or you have a little, be about it. Whether you got a lot or you got a little, be about it. Why? Because Christianity is not a content concept where you learn about God and do nothing. That's what the church has become today. We learn a whole lot about God and then we do nothing. In fact, Jesus says, look, if you're entrusted with the riches of Christ, get out there and get to work. Don't be like the guy who buries it. Don't be like the guy who takes the opportunity of the gospel and goes, 
Well, I don't know. You know, I'm a little nervous. I'm a little busy. Somebody else can do that or, or whatever. That's called hiding it. That's called burying it. And Jesus is like, no, let's go. Like, what are you waiting for? Look, if Jesus is going to return, what else is there to live for? If you think it's bags of gold, if you think it's cars, houses, fame, whatever you think is better, it's not. Nothing is better than the beauty of the gospel. It's incomparable, which means nothing compares to it. There's nothing that compares to it. And church, he is coming back. Like, well, you might go, well, I don't agree. I don't think it matters. Like, I don't think he's, I don't think he's polling you to say, what do you believe? He's coming back. Make no mistake about it. It doesn't make a difference what I believe. That's the truth. That's verse 19. And I think it's worth noting, just like in the familiar, where both the, the, the five-talent person and the two-talent person were given the same commendation, his point is, whether you've been given a lot or little, whether you've been given a lot or little, if we live with the end in mind, it's really about faithfulness. It's not about outcome. It's about faithfulness. So when I share the gospel with someone and someone looks at me and says, Kevin, you're crazy. That may be true. I take no offense to that and I take no credit for that. If I share the gospel with someone and they surrender their life to Christ, I get no credit for that. That's not, it's not about, none of this is about me. I'm just being faithful and I'm being a bit obedient. You know what I heard this week? Interesting, I was listening to a podcast on prayer um, by A.W. Tozer. And one of his lines is, the church today is praying for revival. They're praying for revival. This was written in the 50s. How come the church isn't obeying for revival? Amen. Interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm learning a lot about prayer right now. I'm studying a lot about prayer. And they're like, we pray a lot. I'm not sure we obey a lot. I was like, ah, that hurt. So I turned that off and watched the basketball game, right? That's, is that how that works? Because it's not about the outcome. It's, it's not about the return on investment. No, his point is that each of those servants took what God had given them and like, man, I'm going to go for it. And the Lord blessed them. It's just being faithful with whatever opportunities God put before you. It's being faithful to wake up every day and looking at God and going, God, I know. You know this too, better than me. I'm not the most talented guy. I'm not the most gifted guy. In fact, there's so many people out there that are flat out walking with you better than I am. But man, God, you're going to get me every single day. All of me. And I'm just going to wake up and I'm going to take all this brokenness that is me that I've got and I'm going to present it to you like a, like a holy sacrifice, like a living sacrifice, like an acceptable sacrifice to God. And God, if you'll use this little couple fish couple bread kind of dudes standing in front of you, let's go. That's all I got. And so God, let's go. If there's somebody in my life that needs Jesus, I'll say it. And if there's somebody around that needs to experience the love of God, or the mercy of God, or, the, or the, the grace of God, then here I am, Lord, send me. Whatever fish I got can be theirs. Whatever loaves I've got can be theirs. That's what this picture seems to be talking about. And that's an incredible picture. Now, the parable has three movements. The familiar, the unfamiliar, and the shock. So the question has to be, what's the shock of the passage? 
Well, that's the one talent person. This one talent person took what God had given them and they buried it. They took the common grace about the knowledge of God, much like Romans chapter 1, where natural revelation, natural revelation is where you're in the mountains of North Carolina and you watch a sunset over those mountains and you're like, yeah, there's a God. Or you're out at the beach and you see a sunrise and you're like, yeah, there's a God. You know those moments when you're like, no one has to say anything, you're like, this didn't just happen because that would be nuts. That's the beauty of his invisible attributes, of his divine nature, that creation is sufficient to condemn, but it's not sufficient to save. So it declares God and who he is, but it doesn't save me. And so this one talent guy had the knowledge about God, but not a relationship with God. See the difference? They, they saw it and said, oh, there must be a God. But they don't have a relationship with God. There are people sitting in churches, just like ours, all over the city today, and they have this going on. This person had the common grace of understanding of who God is, but they've not trusted him with their life. They've not surrendered to him. They've heard the riches of the gospel, but in many ways they've done nothing with it, especially internally. And so they've ignored the opportunities. They've buried the calling of Christ on their life. They've rejected the urgency that the master will one day return. And in so doing, the one talent person completely misrepresents the character and the nature of God. See, the one talent person, too many pastors have taught that the one talent person is unfaithful. No, the one talent person is faithless. That's the point. And you're like, Kevin, you're being judgy. I'm not. I'm telling you what it means. Like, listen to what happens. If you think that's bad, if we preach this next section to the world today, if they actually knew this existed in the Bible, I think they would revolt. This is verse 26. His master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. He says, I would have at least had something, but you did nothing, nothing. You took the opportunity. You took the riches of the kingdom of heaven the riches of the glories of Christ, the riches of the knowledge of God, and you just wadded it up and you dug a hole because you heard that I'm an exacting man. You misrepresented me because you did not represent me. That's the difference. See, you misrepresented me because you didn't represent me. And Jesus finishes in verse 28 so take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. This is not culturally popular. 29, for whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow. Right? That's, that's a lot. Simply put, those who are in Christ will have everything. And those who are outside of Christ will have nothing. And here's the concerning part. While all three servants have declared willingly and voluntarily their love 
their sort of commitment to the master, the one talent person is not a believer. He was a circumstantial believer. He was a situational believer. And you're like, Kevin, now you are being judgy. How do you know that guy's not a believer? How mean. But he can't be a believer for three very specific reasons. Well, first, James, the author of the book of James, much like Jesus and Paul and Peter and Jude, like you could just go on because they all say it, they all say behavior follows belief. James says faith without deeds is... So you know, so that's first service is the same thing, dead. Right? That's how we all do. Faith without deeds is dead. Because we know that's super convicting. Faith without deeds is dead. Faith that doesn't demonstrate itself in how we live is an unauthenticated faith. It's proving and showing itself to, that it's not genuine. John chapter 15, Jesus says, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. Like, the Jesus said that. What he's saying is, a professing, if you have a, I profess association with Jesus, that's not helpful. That doesn't save. If you profess an understanding of the concepts of God, that doesn't save. Familiarity and proximity are not salvation. That's why earlier in Matthew, Jesus says, many of you will say on that day, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name? Hey, Lord, hey, man, didn't I cast out demons in your name? Hey, Lord, didn't I perform miracles in your name? And then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They had thought proximity equals salvation. That association, like, hey, I go to church. I'm in a small group. Like, that's the same as salvation. It's not. It's more than that. See, the shock of the passage is that there are men and women in the first century when this is being written, and there's men and women today who know enough about God to have the right answers and yet have no relationship with Jesus Christ and therefore are not a believer. You can know him here and not know him here. I can know all about him up here. I can win trivia contests. Second reason this person is not a believer, it's actually found in verse 28, is that even when they, even what this guy had was taken away from them. Do you see that? He says it was taken away and it was given to another, and yet, theologically speaking, we can't lose our salvation. See, if you think you can lose your salvation, every day you drive to work, you should be scared. Like everywhere you go, fear should run your life. You should be white-knuckling it all the way through because if something happens, and like, did I do enough? You basically live in Vegas theologically, right? You're just rolling those dice every day going, man, I hope I did enough today. I mean, I hope I repented enough. That's not a biblical truth. Jesus says, by the way, not Paul, because some of you are like, well, Paul, is he really? No, this is like the Jesus again. He says in John chapter 5, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged because he has crossed over from death to life. 
And just to make sure, Jesus said it again in John chapter 6, all those my Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. I will never drive away. And this one talent person, even what they had, this knowledge of, this understanding about God was taken from them, and they end up in a pretty terrible place. And that's really the third reason why this person can't be a believer. That's verse 30. It says, and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That servant's going to be thrown into a place commonly known as hell. Yeah. And while that's a terrible, terrible place, and we're going to have to talk more about that next week. And so the question we have to ask is, this is a question you have to ask, but this is a terrible question I had to wrestle with all week. Ready? Which servant are you? That's the question we have to ask. Which servant are you? Like, if you've declared him as Lord and Savior of your life, like if you have knowingly and willingly, voluntarily said, you are my master for life, and I'm going to follow you, and I'm going to live for you, then you have to ask the question, which servant are you? Like, are you a five-talent person? And God's given you incredible influence an incredible opportunity at your work, in your school, and in your neighborhood, in your family, wherever you live, learn, work, and play. And man, you're just cranking it out. Like you are sharing the gospel. You are intentionally making disciples. You are worshiping the Lord. You are influencing your community. Like, is that you? Or are you the, like the two-talent person? Just faithfully stewing whatever God gave you. Just You're leading people to Jesus. You're waking up every morning going, God, I'm dying to myself today, and I want to live for Jesus. I want to be crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's, it's Christ who lives in me. You're the two-talent person? There's only one left. You're the one-talent person. A one-talent person who assumes association and believes that proximity and knowledge equals salvation, that believing in Jesus is just about me getting saved, and then I bury that message in the ground. Like I bury my faith in the ground, being about everything else in this world except the priorities and the callings of Christ. Like I want him to die for me so that I can go to heaven, but I don't plan to die to self. Like, I don't, I don't plan to take up a cross and, like, follow him, because that's a lot. Like, you want to know why this passage is here? Because Jesus is coming back, and that's a fact, Jack. Can I, make, can, can I make old school movie quotes in church? Is that, can I do that? I mean, that's really, and not a single person knows when. Nobody, not one. And when he returns, you had better be ready. We had better be living with the end in mind. Otherwise, you're going to end up being the one-talent person. Church, it's time. We got to start getting after it. Like, we really got to get after it. Every day, we need to recognize that Christianity is not calling us to be religious. Christianity is an invitation to live every single day in pursuit of Jesus Christ, to pursue holiness, to pursue generosity, to pursue helping the poor and the needy and the marginalized. It's, he's inviting us to think differently. So here's what I mean. 
five talent people and two talent people look at their job and ask three questions and then stay laser focused on the answers. Ready? Five talent people and two talent people ask three questions and then they stay laser focused on the answers. They ask, Jesus, why do you have me here at work? Why am I here? Why did you put me in this company? Because it's got to be something greater than the widgets that I make. Because God doesn't need your widgets, right? Like that stuff's not going to be needed in heaven. I mean, you, I don't know if you're going to be able to still do that. Uh, I can make some guesses, but he doesn't need that stuff. So why does he have you there? Jesus, why am I here? Second question people ask. Jesus, what do you want me to do with the people here while you have me here? Because it's about people. So, God, you put me in a place, a job where I'm surrounded by people. Some I knew are still on Zoom, but those are still people. Like, they're not robots. So what do you want me to do with the people while you got me here? And the third question they ask is, how do you want me to do it while you have me here? So you look around, you see, so these are the people you've entrusted me with? And, and, and so how do you want me to do this? Five talent and two talent people ask what, why, and how over and over and over again about their workplace. And then they get after it. That's their mission. The widgets they make, that's a byproduct of the opportunities you have at your job or school because the hope for those people, those disciples, and the hope for these people, these disciples, is that we would actually be people who take the opportunity that's been entrusted to us by Jesus of the riches and of the glory of the gospel, and we would actually invest that into the lives of other people and not just bury it, not just hide it, and then say ridiculous things like, well, I don't like to talk about my faith. You know, I don't want, I don't, I don't want to talk about my faith in, in public. Talking about Jesus in public, that's exactly what a one-talent person says. No, I, I can't talk about Jesus at my workplace or I might get fired. And I want to be sympathetic for a second, but I also don't. So I'm going to choose don't. Uh, because it's not like God is in heaven going, oh, they might lose their job. What am I going to do? <laughs> How am I ever going to provide for their family? You know, that's just beyond me. I don't know what to do here. No, I mean, he's called you for a mission at your workplace. And if for some reason God removes you from there, Satan can't remove you from there. God might move you from there and say, listen, your, your ministry here is done. I'm going to move you over here because there's ministry that needs to be done over here, and you're the person. Let's get after it. Because you got three talents, and they need three talents. Come on in. Don't be the one-talent person. Church, we've been entrusted with the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. We've been entrusted to disciple other people intentionally. And faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Which means he's entrusted the faithful proclamation of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return, he's entrusted it to us. That's the precious talent. That's your $12.1 million. That's what you've been given. And he's called us to proclaim that 
and gave it to us for the sake of others. And we're like, others? Yeah, because you already know where you're going. You do. It's not about you. Stop making it about you. You got family members. You got coworkers. You got neighbors. Man, and the gospel is about those that are out there, not necessarily those that are in here. And here's the, I, I'm not sure I should say this because this is on the live stream, but here, here's the truth. You want me to be about an altar call in here? I'll do that when you start being about an altar call out there. Deal? Because I'm only here once a week. So I'll do it in here when you do it out there. Because we're in this together is how this is supposed to work. I don't have some special power that you don't have. We all have the Holy Spirit. And the gospel has been given to you just like the gospel has been given to me. We might have to edit that out or I might get in trouble, but we'll see. We'll see about that because he's entrusted us with the kingdom. And so whether you're like a five-talent person or you're a two-talent person, it doesn't matter. What matters is the faithfulness with whatever he's given us to live it out, to, to proclaim Christ, to love God, to love our neighbor, to care for those hurting and poor and marginalized, and just to make much of Jesus. He wants us to spend the rest of our days whether you die this afternoon, which I'm not asking for that, or you die in the future, whatever time you've, or he returns, whatever time we've got left, that we would start asking why, what, and how, and to make much of Christ. To be faithful wherever we are and with whatever he's given us. And church, he's going to return. And when he does, he's going to settle accounts. And I pray that each one of us will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But we wouldn't be faithful pastors here at Faith Covenant if we didn't admonish you, if we didn't beg you on behalf of Christ to move from concept to actual trusting in, to, to wake up and to get after it. Oh, that we would learn from the parables like this before he returns. Church, that's the parable of the talents. And church, I think... That's the return you never knew.